This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. 
Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. All right, so I'm sitting here in a beautiful yoga studio with Janelle and Ray Norton. So I want to start by saying thank you so much for having me. Thank you for having us. So for people listening, where on planet Earth are you right now? We are in Trinity, Florida. Beautiful. It's just north of Tampa Bay. That's why when I pulled up to this car park, I parked in front of Trinity Dental by mistake. So this whole area is Trinity. Okay. You don't want to go there. (laughs) All right. So, um, as I always do, I love to start chronologically. So we'll start with you, Janelle. So tell me about your family dynamic, you know, where you were born and what your parents did. I was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, very small little farming community around the outskirts. Um, when I, when I grew up, I was with a single mom and my grandparents lived downstairs and me and my brother and my mom lived upstairs. So that was the dynamic. And, uh, I didn't know my real dad until I was 14. He, uh, he had kind of a very spotty life. He ended up, he was in the Navy when he got married. Um, and then he, uh, found a motorcycle club when he <laughs> started working at a tannery and started running with them and got in a lot of trouble. And, and then he was gone when I was about six months old. So I didn't know him. But when I was 14, he came back in my life and, um, I was always running around shooting pictures with one of those little 110 cameras, you know, with the little square flash. Mm-hmm. Now I'm dating myself. And, um, <laughs> he said, uh, when I met him, he said, I see something in you with this. And he bought me my first camera. And then he, I'd never left Wisconsin. And at 14, he um, flew my brother and I down to visit him in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. And that was uh, the big eye opener for me. I ran around and shot pictures of the craziest stuff I've ever seen in my life. And uh, when I brought it back home, um, I shared all the photographs with my fa- friends and family. And uh, they were all looking through these crazy pictures that I had been experiencing and showed them. And their um, reactions really interested me. And I was like, this is kind of a cool thing. I'd love to be able to do this for a living, run around and bring back little pieces of what happens around the world and, and show people and uh, places that they probably would never see or go to. So that's how that started. And then I was like, how am I going to do that? So I ended up getting an associate degree and uh, I went to the Milwaukee Journal and I applied when I was about 17, 18, and uh, 
They said you need a bachelor's degree. You can't even apply. To take and photographs? Yes, to be a photojournalist. So <laughs> Sounds I was like, like well, the fire service. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty much shit out of luck because I have no money and my parents are like, we're not paying for college, you know, my mom, my stepdad. So um, that's where I looked into the Air Force and the Navy. Both places had really good photojournalism programs at the time. And um, I made my mind up to join the Air Force and I uh, went in kind of blindsided because I didn't have the job guaranteed. They didn't tell me about all that. They're like, you know, yeah, you can be a photojournalist. So I, <laughs> when I went in, I was in basic. I brought my portfolio and they locked it in a closet and I couldn't get access to it. And um, I don't know how I ended up getting somebody to unlock that thing, but I showed it to the right person in basic training who gave me a bypass test. And then they were like, okay, you, uh, you passed it with flying colors. You don't need to go to tech school, direct duty. So then I, I went direct duty, and uh, that was um, uh, an eye-opener, too. That was Panama during 89 Just Cause. That was in, um, I think I got there in November when they were building up troops. So I'm running around. I'm new to the Air Force, just left home, Wisconsin. You know, I'd, <laughs> I I was saluting people with anything, stripes on their arms. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and um, I'm watching all these really interesting things, like all these uh, – Big C-130s just painted white were landing and dudes flying off the backs of them in these ATVs and had long hair. And I'm like, look at this. I'm shooting pictures and they would walk up and grab my camera and rip the film off. I, was give say. Me a camera. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was that was um, I'm going a little farther now past my upbringing. But that's that's kind of the first intro into the military. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, there's a lot that I want to unpack with once you were doing that. I mean, you know, you were some pretty, you know, horrendous war zones. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to go back and touch on on that, did you maintain that relationship with your dad after that? Yeah, my uh, my dad. He lived in New Orleans. He was a captain of a lift barge in the Gulf. Um, one of those oil rig things. My brother ended up moving down there and working with him for a while. And I would just go back and forth and visit. <clears throat> um, we kept, he was really the reason why I became what I became. My mom and my stepdad, when I told them I wanted to be a photographer, uh, they sat me down at the table and they're like, now, Janelle, that's a nice hobby, but you're never going to be able to go anywhere with that. And that's kind of what I needed to hear to make me go that direction, you know, like, watch, I'll do it. So, but my dad always had that, like, you can be anything you want, as long as you're really passionate and really good at it. I don't care if you're a garbage truck driver, just be really good at what you do and love it. Cause it's a long eight hour, 40 year, you know, career to do something that you don't like to do. So we stayed in touch. Um, when I went back to college after the military in the UN, he was in really poor health himself. And, uh, he ended up dying of, uh, cancer when he was 57. So, but, um, he was only in my life between a very short period of time, but it was very pivotal in, in my upbringing and, and who I became. Yeah. Well, firstly, I'm sorry, you know, that you lost your father, but, um, I think what, the takeaway from that is there's probably people listening that maybe had walked away from their family, maybe are holding a grudge from a parent or an uncle, but that one interaction literally shaped your life. Yep. For so, sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I don't know what I'd be without my dad. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, then just staying with you just for one more moment. We obviously, we're in a yoga studio now. 
as a young you know woman were you a sports person or an athlete back then no um my mom was a meter maid so she was always working my stepdad was working at a um, factory so they didn't they were just those folks that were always working and when they weren't working they were working at home and they didn't really you know like like these days with our kids we take them around to all these games and we pour all that time into them they, they didn't do that they were like get out of the house and don't come back until the streetlights come on. So <laughs> so we found uh, stuff to do. I liked roller skating. I did that since second grade where I was at the skating rink. Uh, I played softball. Um, but I wasn't like team sports, especially living in Wisconsin. You got that really f- little sliver of time where you can actually do outside stuff. I mean, it's like eight months out of the year. It's pretty dismal and cold uh did a lot of like darts and bowling and (laughs) that kind of stuff but yeah sports wasn't um something i liked working out like as far as riding a bike and things but it wasn't teams i didn't do any of that well i think there's a happy medium too i think that someone i forget who i was listening to now but they were talking about the the lack of control kids have when they're put in all these programs and they're told to be at, you know, X amount of practices a week and the summer is going to be spent doing travel ball and you lose that play element of sport. So, you know, I'm very lucky where I live now. My son does that. And at the moment, post COVID, sadly, the friends that were out in the streets aren't. They've lost that momentum. You know, they've, they've got stuck on their Xboxes or whatever it is. And he's like, it's like pulling teeth, getting his friends to come out at the moment. But usually that community is thriving and he will. He will literally come home when the streetlights come on, which is in 2020 is a beautiful thing. Yes. Keep that as long as you can. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, over to you, Ray. So same question, you know, where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic. Uh, So I was born in Hoboken, New Jersey, and grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, I moved down to Florida when I was 13. So spent a lot of my formative years running the streets of Jersey City. Um, My mom and dad divorced when I was two. I grew up with my mom, would see my dad on the weekends. Um, My mom was single mom, hardworking. Um, overprotective of me, really didn't want me to do much that I would get hurt. Um, uh, let's see, moved down to Florida and uh, always missed New Jersey, saw it and remembered it as this great place. Uh, I used to spend my summers down the Jersey Shore with um, my cousin, uh, my cousin who's a big influence in my life also. Um, he retired from Newark Fire Department with 33 years. So Growing up with him, that was kind of what piqued my interest in the fire service. Um, and, you know, he, he, looking back, he had a really rough career. Uh, he lived in, worked in Newark during the sixties, during the riots and the town being burnt down. He, um, lost a lot of people that he worked with. Um, and then, uh, really, um, New Jersey, when I graduated high school, I remembered it being this wonderful place. So I moved back up there uh, when I was just out of high school and worked on a beach bar for a while down the Jersey Shore and uh, just kind of screwed off for a while, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Went and lived with my father for a while. And during that time, took up construction. So I was working construction. And uh, after trying to nail down a roof in the middle of the winter with a little freezing rain, <laughs> actually, it was a really interesting. It's because I came home 
that day trying to thaw out after being in the cold all day and was watching the news that night and they just showed a feature of Clearwater Beach which uh, was the area I used to hang out with after school. A real shithole, huh? Yeah, and it was (laughs) like I was trying to thaw out, and there was the beach where I hung out with people running around in bikinis and shorts. It was in the 80s, and I realized, like, what am I doing here, you know, because it wasn't the greatest place, you know. Uh, So I actually called my job and told them – I was quitting. They asked if there was anything they could do to make me stay. And why was I leaving? And I said, well, I'm moving back to Florida. And he can't, it's like, I can't complain with that. And he said, what, uh, when are you going? And I said, well, you were my first phone call. My second phone calls to the airlines. And I think that was like on a Wednesday on that Saturday. It was back in Florida. Yeah. That's brilliant. Now you mentioned about the riots in, in, um, Newark. Can you give me the history of that? Cause I'm not familiar with that specifically. It was, in Newark, it was during the 60s, during the same kind of things we have going on right now, the, the civil rights stuff. So, you know, he had told me stuff like they would go to a structure fire. Like, there was a lot of projects then. There was a lot of huge fires. People were lighting businesses and, and, and buildings on fire. And uh, during that time when they would respond... They would have bricks thrown at them, be shot at, uh, their hoses cut. And, you know, it was, he didn't talk a lot about it, but it was like, I know he went through that period. I think that was obviously fairly early in his career. But, um, you know, Newark was never really, um, especially during that time, it was a very high crime area. And uh, so, you know, he, Throughout his career, he had a lot of tragedies. He, I remember as a teenager being there with one of the neighbor kids, uh, we had found some flares and we were playing with flares and he found that out and, you know, he flipped out because he'd seen a lot of obviously children burned up in fires and, and was like, sat me down, had this long conversation with me. And I remember he's like, I have a book of, cause he would, do that with with kids he's like i got a a book of of people that have been burned up in fires and kids and you know and he explained to me you know i'm just a kid but you know for him you know that was a reality and looking back i know he had ptsd really badly um and and for that like when he saw that i was doing stupid shit like that he really you know like he was a, a a very good guiding influence in my formative years, you know, I was, when I was young, I was a little, uh, a bit of a rebel, I guess. I was always getting in trouble and, you know, my mother gave, you know, gave me the opportunity to go spend summers down there with him and, uh, and, and his wife, obviously at the time. And, uh, that was a very formative time in my life. Uh, you know, he was a, a guiding principal and he's probably one of the reasons I'm, I'm sure that, I became a fireman also. So. Yeah. Well, staying on that then, so walk me through your entry into the fire service. So my entry into the fire service was actually while I was back up living in New Jersey, um, I decided, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I actually applied at Newark Fire Department. And uh, at the time, you know, I talked to the guy and he was like, family is always a, a given. But at the time it was, you know, they were 
going through a period where they had definitely not a lot of diversity in the department. So they were actually looking to diversify. He's like, you know, hang in there, you know, but right now we can't hire you. So I was like, all right. And during that time is when I moved back down to Florida. They did call me a year later and, and offer me, you know, if I would be interested in working. But at that point, I was not interested in being back in New Jersey at all. And uh, my best friend that I grew up with, uh, he was like one of the first people I met when I moved to Florida. H him and I both started volunteering at uh, uh, in the city of Tarpon Springs with their fire department. Um, one of the guys I grew up in high school, his brother, was actually a lieutenant at that department. And I went in and kind of got around the trucks. And at that time, I was trying to decide if I wanted to go in the military or if I wanted to be a fireman. And once I got in there, got around the trucks and stuff, that was, uh, that was it for me. The draw was there. Both, uh, my friend Chad and I, we were both going to recruiters together and then we started volunteering together. And then, you know, once I got there and it was an interesting time when I started volunteering, you could do everything. I mean, so like, before I'd even been to fire school, I was going into fires with an air pack, which is pretty much unheard of now. Um, so, um, and, and the guys that I worked with were, were really, um, good guys and they were really, uh, they're good at guiding my career. They would take the time. They knew I was very interested. So even on their downtime, they would, pull out ladders and work and do drills with me and help me prepare for that kind of stuff. And, and that was kind of my entry into the fire service was, was as a volunteer. And then the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to know about it. Beautiful. Well, staying on that just for a second, then that mentorship over, you know, quite an extensive career that you've had now. I have seen the complete gamut from one department where the training was incredible. The, you know, the probation they were with you every single day you know that was viewed then as you know the beginning of the rest of your career when you got off probation just just ongoing training ongoing fitness it was fantastic but then i see a lot of um eye rolling millennials you know millennial this snowflake that and yet a complete lack of mentorship to these young firefighters that are walking through the door so what has been your observation of, of mentoring in general in the fire service over your career? Well, I think that's kind of always existed. So when I first started, you know, it, when you opened the door to the fire station, you'd think it was on fire because smoke would just roll out because it was a bunch of guys sitting around playing cards and smoking. Um, the younger guys that were probably in their 30s at that time that were really involved and you know, they saw that I was really eager to learn. So they took their time with me. Some of the older guys, they, you know, they never wanted to train. They didn't want to do any of that stuff. A lot of them were burned out at that point. Um, throughout my career, I've seen that ebb and flow. And, and you know, it, some of it's depending on leadership in the fire department. Like if that kind of tone is set from the top down. Um, but I've also seen it the other way where, um, that leadership wasn't there, but then it got, became a groundswell from the bottom down that like the guys taking it on their own to train. So, and as far as the mentorship, I mean, we, one day sitting at the fire station, you know, I, I looked around and realized I was the old guy. 
you know, for, for years, I always was a guy that never had time on. And I was, you know, I, I remember seeing people that were in my position and seeing them as older. And, and it was really, it was a, it was a rude awakening sitting there at one table once. And all of a sudden, like, Oh, I'm almost the most senior guy. And I am the old guy. And, and as far as yeah, the millennial thing and, and I th- think the biggest difference is when I came in, um, at least speaking from my experience in the area I started, um, most everybody came from the trades. There was, there was a small percentage that didn't, but like, which was a really good thing to have in the fire service because you had mechanics, you had carpenters, you had plumbers, you had electricians. I mean, and, and pretty much everybody had a side job when they were in there, but having that wealth of knowledge from those people that came up in the fire service and actually worked in, in that real world, um, they had a lot more to be able to, to pass on. And what I'm seeing now is a lot of, it, it's kind of the opposite now. Very few people come from the trades and everybody comes without this big life experience, except for veterans that are coming into the fire service. So, and then of course, you know, how much of it is me seeing that as a generation gap? Because I am now the old guy. And, and you know, I remember some of the older guys going, oh, you know, calm down. You don't need to learn everything, you know. So, I think it does, ex- the mentorship isn't there as much as it was now. But I think they're, at least with some of the guys that I work with now, I, I do see that there is a renewed interest in that. Um, there's a renewed interest at, um, at the dinner table. Like there's a couple guys that have been like, hey, everybody just sit down. This is where you, this is where you learn to be a fireman. Like this is where the stories happen. This is where you get to learn and, and stuff gets passed on. Like, and some are guys, some guys are starting to see that. Some guys that are in the middle are starting to see that and, and, and looking to pass on their experiences also. Cause you know, you always get that generation gap, like, Oh, you guys think you know everything. And, and then the other guys think, Oh, they don't know anything. But you know, I, I think a lot of it is your personal involvement. If you are a go getter and you are really interested in the information, people will take the time with you. If you come in and you treat it like it's just a job. I think the the older guys don't tend to really like. I'm not. I'm going to invest the level in you that you invest in a job. Yeah. So I I think it's it's not a really easy thing to discuss. And I've had that I've had that discussion with some chiefs. You know, am I just the older guy now looking at it different, or is is it different? And and I think it's both. Both. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, it's a good good perspective. I see the same. I obviously, um, in our echo chamber, we see a lot of fired up firefighters because you know they're the ones listening to podcasts like this, and I'm reading their books, and you mm-hmm. know there's this whole um, interrelation. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of like you said, come in, put your gear on a rig, wait for 24 hours, and then leave, and that's that's not helping. If you're the older guy with that philosophy, and it's not helping, like you said, if you're the new guy with that philosophy. So, you know, when, when lives depend on your skills, there's no room for that. Yeah. And I think like when I started, the brotherhood was really strong. And then there was a period where that was really gone. And in my department, there was, there were some challenges in our department with a few individuals where 
that really completely broke down. But I also see in the fire service now that there's a move back toward that brotherhood. And, and of course, every region is different. And, you know, so departments have always had it. Um, but I, I do see that there, there is a group of people that are very interested in, in learning. And, and, and I think they're looking back and reading some of those old books. And I think there is a renewed interest in that, that brotherhood, sisterhood of, of everybody being as one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Janelle, back to you. So like you said, you were, you were living you know, in Wisconsin, you found yourself in the military, but not just, you know, doing a civilian style job within the military, but you were embedded with the front line at that point. So kind of lead me through some of the deployments and, you know, and if you're okay with it, even tell me some of the, the things that shook you that you saw. Sure. Um, uh, the, the first thing that really shook me was when I was in Panama, uh, when we, the buildup was happening, we were photographing that. We knew that there was going to be some kind of action taken. Uh, it was called Just Cause. It was 1989. Noriega was going to get taken out one way or another. Um, but like I said, I was very new in the military. I wasn't sure how this whole thing worked. I was just told to run over here and take pictures. And at the time, uh, being a woman in the Air Force, we were not allowed to be in combat back then. So my stuff was primarily um, stuck on base doing whatever things are going on. And my colleagues that were photojournalists were out running around doing the outside stuff, which kind of made me a little mad, but <laughs> so, but then it, it came home really quickly. Um, that night that things happened, uh, they, they were bombing the commandancia and, um, we had a couple of Rangers jump into Rio Hato that got ambushed and, they, uh, they came to my dorm and, um, the night before we were just down there bowling in the bowling alley, they came knocking on my door and they're like, Hey, we need you to run down to the bowling alley, bring your gear. So I went in and, uh, there's, they had it made into a makeshift morgue and it was a bunch of body bags of the guys that didn't make it at Rio Hato that got ambushed. And I just kind of stood for a second. Like I, I couldn't, kind of wrap my head around what I was seeing in this space. I was just having a beer in the night before. And then they're like, okay, uh, come over here first. And they unzip this big black bag and they peel it open. And I photographed his face. And I remember that guy really clearly because he just looked so peaceful. He was, looks like he was sleeping at his brand new high and tight. And, uh, and then when they took the rest of the bag off, um, I noticed that they had been trying to keep him alive because he still had tubes coming out of him. One arm was just completely gone. And then they were kind of washing the bodies down in there to put them in new bags to put them, you know, on the plane to go home. And they were rolling these folks around and there was holes in them and things were coming out of them. And I, I was photographing it going, I, I just can't believe that this is happening. I've never seen a dead person in my whole life. And here I'm in a whole room full of people my age that are now not with us anymore. So they're like, run back to the dark room and uh, get this developed. We need to get that film up to the Pentagon ASAP. This is before, you know, we had cell phones and could just send pictures. So I was in the dark room, turn off the lights. And I remember trying to roll that film on the reel. And that kid was just standing behind me without the arm I don't know for how long it just was seared in my mind. Um, so that was like the first real, uh, like this is, this is war. I'm at, you know, and then the, the next day they started bringing in ice cream trucks 
full of um, people that they pulled out of the areas that were bombed. They had the stealth bomber for the first time come in and do some stuff. And uh, a lot of people under rubble in 90-degree heat, they had to keep them cold, but they needed photographs of their faces to put up on a wall for their relatives to come and ID them. So that was, you know, what we did on base. for. So that was it was a rough assignment, a very rough first assignment. Um, uh, it was about a year down there, and then I went to Hurlburt Field, which was very fun. That was all training, special operations, and that's where, uh, back it up a little bit, I was a, uh, assigned as a base photographer to Panama, and I was putting in to be a photojournalist. There was only one woman that had um, done that so far in the Air Force, and then uh, I was uh, alerted when I got to Hurlburt that I was the the second female that would get that special identifier. So they sent me up to uh, Rochester Institute uh, and trained me to be a photojournalist um, in a civilian school. It was pretty neat. And uh, I got to photograph all the um, the special forces with all the really cool stuff at Hurlburt, all the... the you know, the rangers that are training down there, they had all kinds of, you know, interesting um, stuff that happens at Hurlburt. And uh, I got to f- my flight status. Um, I flew a lot on the gunships, the Spectre and the Talons. We did a lot of low level. So it was just, I was in the prime of my life. I had a lot of fun. There was really no danger, you know. And then um, I was there two years and we got my assignment to Germany. And that was when uh, the, the real world stuff really came into play. And that's where uh, we went to Monrovia, Liberia. Um, to extract a bunch of Silganese soldiers. They had an election, and the 130s that we flew uh, in to the um, airport, um, Charles Taylor killed a whole bunch of people, and he would leave them all in that swamp right at the end of the runway where you'd land. And uh, the place was nuts. It was crazy. They had a... I hooked up with some guy who I know had to be an, an OGA guy, you know, and uh, he took me shopping, uh, down in Liberia while we were waiting for him to load up the planes and I got to see a little bit of downtown. It was, uh, it was pretty nuts. Um, I needed him to take me to the embassy that they evacuated because I had not gotten my, my phone cable to hook up my Inmar sat so I could get imagery back to the Pentagon. So that's why I got to go downtown or they would have never <laughs> let me. But that was, um, really interesting space. Then, uh, we did places like, I never heard of Azerbaijan, Armenia, Tajikistan. They would just tell you pack hot or cold, and we would go in, and we were there doing humanitarian aid. Um, I'm sure there was things going on, but (laughs) I was there photographing the humanitarian aid delivery. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) yeah, so that was was interesting. There was um, hospitals we went in where babies were freezing overnight because they didn't have heat. And, um, you know, it was just really third world stuff. Uh, we fo- photographed that. And, uh, and then the Bosnia stuff started to kick off. I did a lot of denied flight. I was in Aviano Air Base, uh, just photographing all the, the air ops that were going on, the KC-135 refueling missions over Spain and uh, Naples, Italy. We are doing all that. And then um, the 130s. Uh, were the only thing that could land in Sarajevo because the runaway was all pocked and it's in a bowl of mountains and snipers would shoot. So they would just, um, be fly, flying in the C-130s to get supplies and people in and out. So we were doing airdrops and we were doing those. I was on those missions and we were taking the UN people in, in the early nineties as they were building up their mission. And I made friends with those guys. 
and uh, they ended up offering me a job, and that's how I ended up getting out of the Air Force and staying in Bosnia. But um, that that was a really interesting time. I worked um, with General Jones, who was a commandant in the Marine Corps back then, and uh, pretty much a, a mentor for me. He's a, he was a re- another pivotal person that uh, he would kick full birds off of his Learjet to bring me along to photograph stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> it was so fun. <laughs> but that went down well. Yeah, right? <laughs> we would go into Sarajevo and... and uh, you know, I document him meeting with all these uh, big shots there and actually got him shot at uh, when we were leaving Sarajevo the first time that we landed. Some major was driving, you know, really fast through no man's land and all these places were all blown up and they were getting briefed in the front seat. And I rolled a window down and shot a few pictures and so we started to take fire. And <laughs> so I bought General Jones a new little hat with a white flag that popped that said, don't shoot me. And <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. Anyway, he's he's the guy that really helped me get the job in the UN because he had he was Sakir, Supreme Allied Commander back then. And when uh, they offered me a job, um, I think it was because of him opening that door for me. So, when did you spend much time in Sarajevo itself? Well, when I was doing the um, the air drops and air landings, we would just land there. We might go in the city, do some stuff, and, and come back out. So like I said, it, this was back in the early 90s. Women weren't really – it was just – the Army was starting to let women do um, combat, but the Air Force is really sticky about that. And um, I remember, you know, the first – time that I got out of the Air Force and I went to the UN, it was just completely opposite because they they just threw me a set of keys and a map and gave me a Land Rover and they're like, okay, this is where you're going. We didn't have GPS back then. Here's your map. Make sure you try to cross these Serb border areas before it gets dark because they're drinking all day and, you know, they might forget to pull a landmine off the road to let you through and all, you know, don't go off the road. It was crazy. It was like, okay, this is not the Air Force. They would have checklists and everything was, you know, you hop on an Aleutian or something that the Russians were flying for us and there was no checklist. There was like vodka bottles under the seat and smoke barreling out of the cockpit and it was, it was craziness. But, uh, yeah, that's when I stayed, um, in, in Zagreb I lived, but we traveled into all the enclaves. Um, I was there two years. I did four six month tours in there for the United Nations. So, yeah. Because I know, um, I had Sebastian Junger on a couple of times and, and uh, we'll get into his work. I know they mentioned it in the Lotus podcast that you guys did as well. But he talks about his best friend, Tim Hetherington, who was the photojournalist, I think, and he was killed. Um, but, in I think it's tribe was it war maybe war but he talks about um, in Sarajevo where people were just trying to get from one side of the city and snipers would just shoot them there in the middle of the, the street yep yeah they'd be on trams and pick them off and yeah people like um, garage not garage where was that one Sapna we went into one they had to get a, a broker a ceasefire and they would have uh, close air support and they had them agree to not shoot at us for a day so that we could get food in. There was like one dirt road in through the mountains and one dirt road out. So our convoys would go in and, uh, you know, people came out, but you could see how they were living. Like they were getting picked off, getting water. They'd have to all go to the same thing to get water every day. And, you know, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's going to get taken out it it was it was just a really bad way to live it was a horrible place but then again you get to see the the most resilient um features come out of human beings when they live in those kind of conditions so 
they um, they were able to figure out how to make electricity by taking an alternator from their car, putting it on a pallet with a line that would float into their house. And that's how they had electricity. Um, it was just a very interesting time <laughs> to be a witness to that kind of stuff. I don't take anything for granted anymore. So. Yeah. And just, just as a side note to educate me, what was the... What was the reason for the conflict and how was it resolved? Oh boy, depends who you ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first thing that happened was uh, Slovakia succeeded from the former Yugoslavia and uh, they pulled away. And then uh, I think Croatia started uh, looking at that like, hey, we get all the tourism money and we're just, you know, sending it to uh, Belgrade. They're getting all of our money. So they started trying to succeed and and uh same thing kind of was happening with with um Macedonia and Bosnia that whole thing was getting real unstable and um the, Serbia was like we don't want you know us to break up so they were trying to keep it to be the former Yugoslavia and then it just became a civil war at that point and what made it really sad was um it was such a mixed dynamic the place had been you know it wasn't it was split up into those territories but there was you know serbs and bosnians married to each other and you know muslims and catholics all you know everything was all together and when the war happened uh, it was neighbor on neighbor um we actually lived for a little while with a a serb man who lived with a bosnian woman and they would bomb their house because they decided to stay in the croatian area that was uh um, set aside for, you know, no man's land in Croatia that, so they could stay there and they, they would bomb them because they were staying together. It, yeah. See, it's insane because people talk about me being English and like, oh, you know, the Welsh, the Welsh hate the English, don't they? All this kind of stuff. I'm like, we're on a rock. There are no fences, nothing other than a sign saying, welcome to England. And it's the same idea. Like all of a sudden, England, Scotland and Wales went to war, which, you know, way, way back in the day they did. And for what? You know, like you said, these are, these are people that lived perfectly fine together. And then when you, you have to question, well, what was the real reason? Was it, you know, money and power and greed at the end of the, the day? The people on the outside really, uh, stoked that, I believe. Like America was backing Croatia. We had interests with that. Uh, Russia was backing Serbia. And, um, I think that that had a lot to do with the, I mean, they had the Mujahideen was coming into Bosnia. They were helping them. So everybody got their little paws involved and then they start, you know, giving them more supplies. And yeah, it was, they didn't have all that weaponry at first, I don't think. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's horrendous. And uh, some of the, some of the horrendous, like extreme groups that were in there and the genocide that was going on was mm. just awful. Yeah. So just from, from a different lens, so you went from the Air Force to the UN, is that right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, this ridiculous kind of version of media that we have at the moment, the UN's ridiculed, you know. So tell me what it was actually like from, from someone who was serving to the UN. What was your perspective changing kind of, uh, um, you know, the, the banner that you were under? So what our job was for as a press information office for the United Nations was to document the 38 contributing nations that were there involved. We had everybody from Pakistanis, Africans, uh, you know, there was na- all over the place, Norway, Finland, America, everybody was there. It seemed it was kind of really cool because you could go eat lunch at the Pack Bat and then you could go drink at the Norway club at night. And <laughs> it was like awesome. And, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, the Swedes all brought their, um, and the Finns brought all their saunas and dumped them on the tops of the mountains and had the best kitchens. It was, it was wonderful from that perspective. But from the press information perspective, we were there to show what these guys were doing. Um, they translated it into, um, the three, although they all kind of speak the same language, there's different dialects. So we had to have interpreters that would, have the correct language or dialect for Serbia, Croatia, and um, Bosnia. There's, you know, different ways to to talk, basically. And uh, so we would we would have those printed out every month, and we would go into these areas and show the aid that was delivered, um, rebuilding efforts, um, you know, the um, just wh- whatever the UN was was doing there to keep peace, basically. And, uh, there was, there was some weird things too, you know, like people were finding one time they found a bag of like, I can't remember how many thousands of dollars of just a brown paper bag in a bathroom there, you know, at the UN headquarters, like, you know, weird stuff. And then they would have like, um, an awning that was, um, made out of copper. So the head of the UN wouldn't get wet when he'd go to his car. And then when people came over to do a, um, inventory and stuff. They had to paint that because it was kind of uh, the money thing is what I'm saying. It's like they were, they were spending, um, money. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of aid that didn't make it all the way in. You know what I mean? (laughs) We'll put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll stay with you for a moment then. So you've obviously seen some pretty horrendous things and in a different lens, like a, inability to make a difference you weren't carrying a weapon you weren't carrying a med bag you were literally forced to be an observer did you have any kind of acknowledgement back then of the impact mentally that that service made i had no idea um it got it was it was um you know you're working with all these journalists and we have a very dark humor kind of like the fire department has and that's our way of coping right so what the worse things get the darker the humor is and you try to make it regular and normal um so that went on for a long time and it became so normal that i actually caught myself um finding out that i'm not acting like a regular human being should act around other human beings uh, or thinking i should say uh, there's the one story that I tell, um, I, I always had to document the refugees coming across the border. They would collect their stories. They had like the Red Cross and all these other people there. And I would, and I would be there photographing with a reporter. And, um, we would hear a lot of mass rape stories that happened on the regular, um, horrific, horrific stories. And after you hear, I think it's almost like a moral injury. It is a moral injury. I think you just hear so much of that. Um, your mind just has to figure out a way to not deal with it. Of course, drinking was one thing that we did a lot of over there. Um, and I remember there was one point that I was listening to this poor woman just crying and telling her story. The interpreter was interpreting it and it was horrific. And I was just, I was hung over and I was just like, God, just please hurry. I want to go home. I just want to go back and lay down and get something to eat. And, you know, and it just hit me like that is really not normal. What you're sitting here listening to and what you're thinking, there's something wrong. And that's when I decided I better go home. That it was it was time. Right. Well, then bringing Ray back in the conversation. So you are now being working the fire service. Um, I heard you discussing about amounting other external professions as well. So kind of lead me through fire service and then how you got into the medical side. 
All right. So uh, actually, it goes back to when I was a volunteer. <clears throat> I wanted to be a fireman. I had no interest in medical, nor do nor did I know anything about it. And actually, one of my early calls was um, was a diabetic call, and I had no idea what was going on. And went in there, and this lady was unresponsive. And you know, again, I had only been a volunteer a couple months, and they throw me an IV IV and set me up a D five mini drip, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, you know. And then all of a sudden, like. They started an IV, gave this lady something, and she was up and talking. And I thought that was pretty interesting and went back to the station. And one of the guys that was a, a, a big influence on me, you know, he kind of explained to me what happened and what was going on. And, and then uh, I went through EMT school. And um, the more I learned, the more I, I wanted to learn. And I was like going through EMT school and I'm studying. I'm actually studying with guys at the station. He's pulling out his paramedic book, you know, and. And uh, I remember my first test in EMT, right, sitting in there, and I'm, I had no, no idea what to expect. And I actually kind of chuckled while I was taking the test. And the instructor's like, something funny? I was like, oh, just I was expecting this test to be harder than it was. I just really prepared. And he goes, well, don't you know, assume so thing is over. And, of course, I had smoked it, but I had studied it <laughs> at, at like a paramedic level. And uh, the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And as soon as I got done with EMT school, I had my sights set on going to medic school, which was the same time I actually got. So I volunteered for a year. And during that time, I uh, I volunteered more hours than the paid guys were working. So I was really into it. And uh, <clears throat> the city said, you know, we have a spot. We want to hire you, but we have a, a hiring freeze at this point. So, <coughs> excuse me. As soon as that hiring freeze is up, you have a job. So, during that period, I was going to paramedic school, and then they came to me one day and said, "Oh, you're hired." And uh, it was such an easy transition for me. It was actually, I'd been on the job maybe two years at that point. They came back and said, "Oh." Um, we got to get you to fill out an application because we never even had you fill out an application. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so going through paramedic school, um, you know, it was eye opening for me and I, it was learning this whole new world. I knew nothing about, and I, I really gravitated to it and, um, uh, became a paramedic and started working as one. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to know more. One of my early mentors, you know, he was kind of a bit of a perfectionist. He was a, ex-Air Force guy. He had served on, I think, the presidential detail. He had done some flying before. And and his thing was, like, he had gotten something like a 97 on his state test. and But he was like, well, what if it's that 3% that the call comes in? You know, so he kind of kind of uh, molded me into really wanting to learn more. And, uh, you know, I was working at a department at the time in Tarpon, it was actually a lot of crime. It was a lot of drug violence. I had went to school there, had no idea all this was going on. So we had like shootings and stabbings and people run by cars and assaults and all kinds of interesting stuff. And <coughs> excuse me, the, the trauma stuff was something that, that really appealed to me. So I decided there was one call that another one that shaped me. It was a, actually a car accident where somebody had to be cut out of the car somebody i went to high school with they turned out to be fine but they called the helicopter you know the helicopter landed and the crew came over and took care of the patient and i was like wow that that's a really cool job i want to do that and i was told 
forget it. You'll never get on. The line for that is forever. You're just You're never going to get on that job. You encouraging know? So, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, and it was true. It was, it was like, at the time, there was only one helicopter. I think there were nine medics working for the program at that point and maybe five or six nurses. Mm-hmm. You only want one spot. Right. You it's all I, mean? I wanted. That's all I'm you know? asking for. <laughs> so I, I decided, uh, actually, one of my mentors was working in the ER there, and I decided to take a job in the emergency room. Um, and I was told, well, you got to be a medic at least two years. So I hounded them. They hired me at a year and a half. And I got in there. Pediatrics is a weak point for me, so I, I did a lot of time doing trauma adult and pediatric and i would do time working in the pediatric emergency room my goal was to get on the helicopter one it was a lot of competition and two nobody gave up the spot so getting a job was you know it luckily i think somebody wound up moving and a position a couple of positions opened up and uh, i went for it and I, I i got the job actually i got passed up first the went through the interview process and I was, you know, the crew came up to me and like, hey, I said, no, I didn't get it. And they're like, what? So they all went upstairs and kind of chewed the boss and said, and he's like, well, he's kind of laid back. And like, that's what we want. You know, he's laid back no matter what's going on. So, so I got on there. Um, and, and, but again, like I, I always had this thirst for knowledge. So when I started in the emergency room, um, the, going back to orientation right so this is my orientation my first day in the er and they're like we're going to put you with this guy and he's going to show you how to do the job and his daily activity seemed to revolve around going around the hospital and finding all the id poles and bringing them back to the er so he was very good at getting out of work so when um Actually, it began for me to work on my own. I had no idea how anything flowed. So I just had 400 IV poles. Yeah, (laughs) patients came in and there were charts and people would do stuff and then come back. And so I kind of had to learn it for myself. And I looked around and within a short amount of time, you know who the people in the emergency room were. So I attached myself to them, learned everything I could about trauma, um, everything I could about the emergency room and got to a point where I had the uh, the confidence of the flight crews. I had the confidence of all the trauma surgeons, and I was one of the main guys that worked in the trauma room, and uh, and did a lot of time in the pediatrics. So, um, you know, uh, I got to a point where I was one of the main guys who did the precepting for people in the ER, and then precepting for people in the trauma room, and then the helicopter. I got on there, and uh, there were twenty four hour shifts. Um, so I would work a fire department shift and then I would do 24 on, I would do like 7 PM to 7 AM. And the people I were working with were amazing. They were the cream of the crop and learning from them was amazing. And, uh, the nice thing about the thing is we went, I think, uh, at the time we were the busiest trauma helicopter in, in the nation and most, uh, flight programs did, a. a a mix of interfacility and trauma. I think we were like 97 to 99% scene response and trauma. And, you know, we covered about nine counties and then we covered about 150 square miles for pediatrics and neonatal transfers for all children. So, um, and then again, I just, I had amazing crew members that I worked with. I had really great role models that taught me and I latched on, learned everything I could. And, and then I became 
one of the primary preceptors on the helicopter also. And then the program expanded to like five helicopters. And then I did that for like 24 and a half years. But it was, you know, that was the stuff that like, that's where I got a lot of my medic experience. So it was, I mean, if you can imagine what can happen to people, right? The helicopter would, at the time we didn't have as many trauma centers. So shootings, stabbings, car accidents, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, pediatric stuff. We're at the pediatric drowning capital of the world here. So um, so with a lot of pediatric codes, a lot of child abuse, shaken baby syndrome, child rape, all, you know, all the nasty side of life. And, and that was pretty much my, my job there. And uh, I worked a tremendous amount of hours. I could not really get enough of flying. So, you know, there were there were times that I would work. 24 to 36 hours on the helicopter a week in addition to my fire department. Sometimes I would work two 24-hour shifts at the at Bay Flight. Um, and then, and in the first few years, I also continued to work in the emergency room also. So, and then I uh, did that for like 24 and a half years, and I think I stopped flying, what, about five or six years ago? Well, I, I tried to stop before that. I... Uh, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to retire. And then uh, they were like, they invited me to a Christmas party, like, I don't know, three or four months later. And then they like, come on back, come on back. And, nah. and then they talked me into coming back. And then, They gave you a present with a flight suit inside. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I started flying again. And then when I went back, that's when I kind of knew I was... I was done. Like the fun was gone. And I think I did it for like another year, something like that. And then, uh, yeah. And then I kind of transitioned out of that and transitioned to a new aspect of my life. So did you, cause I mean, when I, when I listened to you telling the same kind of story on the other podcast, it immediately rang bells with me now having been down this journey that the, the overwork and obviously you've got a sleep deprivation element and you've also got, is that filling is is that a distraction from things that are going on inside so did you have a kind of critical point where where you you know had a come to jesus moment as far as your work week and your mental health um sort of right uh i had signs that i never really paid attention to so for me the work at least in my opinion back then was I just enjoyed, I enjoyed going to the fire department. I'm like, oh, sure, I'll work another shift. And, uh, you know, looking back, it was probably, you know, you know, the, the, one of the, I don't know if it's the best, but it seems to be an effective coping mechanism, at least for keeping things at bay is being a workaholic. Right. And I think, uh, in the fire service that runs rampant. And, uh, for me, like every available shift I took, Overtime, I took it all the time, and uh, I said I routinely a slow week was probably eighty hours. You know, anything the average week was probably over a hundred hours. And I, was, I always tell this one story: is that the one time I worked one hundred and forty-four hours in one week. You know, when when me and Janelle were together, you know, I don't know, it was probably in the. I don't know, maybe the last 
10 years or so of my flying career, I, I had conversations with her like, there's got to be something wrong with me because all of the things that I've seen, right, all of the things I've done, and I never got them, n- nothing ever seemed to bother me. I got, my entire career, I got emotional on one call. And it was actually way back in the day where uh, I, I went, I wound up running a cardiac arrest on a, a, a sailboat and uh, I was trying to figure out if anybody knew anything about the patient. And they're like, oh, yeah. His name is Billy. He's a helicopter pilot for Bay Flight. That was one of my friends that I worked with. And then, uh, you know, I worked him and arrived at a hospital with him. And it just happened to be the entire ER staff was people that I worked with at Bayfront back in the day, which some of them were my mentors, and they all knew him. And then uh, after that call, I kind of lost my, my shit. And uh, I called my district chief and... Well, even though if I was able to tell him I was crying pretty bad and he's like, I've never seen anything bother you. And, you know, I went home that day that in my entire career, that's the only call that I ever remembered getting emotional about, you know, I guess I was pretty good about compartmentalizing things, but I remember having those distinct conversations with Janelle. Um, it's got to be something wrong with me because I know these calls. I, I see how they affect people. And, and you know, I can talk about some of them that, like, how they were really poorly handled with people that were having struggles that needed help. But um, for me, I think there were a couple uh, warning signs that I missed. But the one that got her attention, well, no, the one that kind of got my attention was um, – I injured my shoulder at work and it was supposed to be a career ending injury. I had surgery, um, got an infection, had two additional surgeries, wound up in a hospital with, uh, IV antibiotics. And, uh, and that one, at one point, uh, I had to walk my daughter to school, which is probably, I don't know, 300 yards away from her house. I walked her to school and got back, kind of collapsed on the couch and, was exhausted, kind of was worried that the infection, you know, might do me in at that point. And, uh, but I was home for seven months. Um, and of course I filled it up doing PT like six times a day, <laughs> but that was the first time that I had been home that long. I mean, I took off like a month when my daughter was born, but if you've had a small kid, there's nothing relaxing no about <laughs> that, right? So, but that was the first time I had to just sit. Yeah. And it's the first time I realized the schedule I was working wasn't normal. But it was kind of a, a missed sign because when it was, when that passed and I went back to work, um, that was the time where I think we started doing my timeline always gets screwed up, but that's when I started. Uh, we had some downsizing in a department, and <clears throat> I took on the role of, in addition to my job as district chief, I took on the training. I took on the EMS chief's role. So um, at that point, I was either on the helicopter, I was at the fire department, I was on the drill grounds, I was, you know, um, I, I Again, like I was working till midnight every night doing paperwork and I was, you know, another, um, wake up call was, uh, 
Janelle called me one day in the middle of all this, and she's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, you're probably going to have to bail me out of jail. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I kind of was in an argument with my chief, and I envisioned, like, dragging him out of his chair and beating his ass. And and uh, so I went to the other station, and, like, I'm going to go back. And if he's there, I don't know, you know. And he wasn't there when I got back. And, I mean, he was the kind of guy you could have a – knock down drag out with and have a beer the next day you know so there was no lasting stuff from that but that was the first time i was like i need an outlet so uh still didn't think anything was wrong but i was like oh i need an outlet i'm stressed and so i, I called janelle and said i'm gonna go back to martial arts tomorrow you know and then that's when i uh I went and I started training again and then I, uh, that's when I, through this art that I was studying, Wing Chun that I had studied years ago, that's where I found there was a seminar for Cali and I had no idea what it was and like, oh, it's knife and stick fighting. I'm like, sign me up. So, so yeah, so that's kind of how I found that. But I did miss a few signs along the way. When I was in my 20s and I was working in the emergency room, and again, working a lot of hours, I kind of felt like my blood pressure was elevated and I took my blood pressure and it was like in the two thirties over one twenties as a 20 year old, you know? And, uh, so I just, you know, instead of going to the doctor, I went to the gym and started hitting the gym again. And then it's been normal ever since, but that was probably an early sign that my lifestyle, you know, cause I, I pretty much it was either at work was at the hospital, I was on a helicopter, or I was at the bar hanging out and having fun, you know. So, and I think, you know, partying was kind of one of my outlets. Fitness has always been in and out of my life. And when fitness was not in my life, I think that's when when I would feel the stresses building up. Yeah. yeah. When you mentioned as well about not not feeling like it was impacting you, and that's something that I've had, and it's, it's amazing brilliant and there's one call that shook me and I actually wrote about it in the book it's a little girl that was killed in a car accident um but even then it was just like i had a kid the same age it was the same car seat i mean everything so i was still fully functional I didn't break down but it was just like a few extra breaths i was like yeah that was you know and it was a body retrieval there was no helping helping that child um but when i look back now you know i had divorce all kinds of stuff but it was the just pure luck of the way I was raised, you know, on a farm and, and, you know, my philosophy that I had all those positive coping mechanisms in my life at the same time. So my low, as low as it was, wasn't super low. And I think it's probably the same with you, but, but yeah, with the, um, with the busyness, whether it's like you said, you know, working out too much and some people, you know, over, over attend, you know, fitness, um, events and things or the overtime, I don't think any of us realize what's really going on until we pause. And I think that's why the injuries or the retirements or, you know, the promotions and now you're behind a desk, whatever it is, that's when everything's allowed to come in and you're like, oh shit, maybe, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. And, and, and even through all those things, I, I, I still didn't realize it, you know, because I just would go back and just, I'd go back to my normal. And it was really, um, one of the key things, again, which was a, another sign I missed, is uh, one of my best friends that I started with. And like we were discussing earlier, me and my best friend started together. The group of us that hung out together, um, 
we're, we're the only two that are left from that started. Uh, several of our group committed suicide um, or ruined their careers with drugs and alcohol and wound up losing their careers that way. And I've seen that cycle repeated over and over again. But one of them was uh, we were home one night. And I received a phone call. And uh, it was a friend of mine who drugs and alcohol kind of ended his career. And then he kind of always seemed to have bad luck in his life health-wise and all. And we kept him involved in our family. He was in my wedding. Um, he stood up for me in my wedding. Uh, and I got a phone call from another firefighter. And uh, he's like, hey, uh, I can't get a hold of him. He hasn't answered his phone in a few days. So I uh, I said, yeah, he, he does that. You know, we just saw him a week ago. And he's like, no, he hasn't, like, responded to his mom in days. I'm like, all right. He's like, I'm at work. I can't go check on him. So I'm like, I'll, I'll head over there. And driving over there, I mean, it must have been apparent. My daughter was pretty young, but she knew when I left. She could see it on my face. And uh, when I left, I kind of knew what I was going to find. Um, so I drove over to his house, and like I said, the first thing, uh, I opened up the door, and, like, the air conditioner was cranked way down, you know, like, a, you know. So I uh, I opened the door, and I, I found, you know, he, he committed suicide, and he, he did it in a pretty horrific way, and I found him. Um, but, of course, I treated it like a call. I looked around, like, was this a crime? Was this a suicide? Looked around a little bit for a note, backed out my same track like I would on a call, called the cops, talked to the cops, told them the background, and then went home and uh, really didn't hit me. And then my, she's like, your daughter's waiting up, wants to know uh, what happened. So I had to kind of tell her, which then I kind of broke down telling her. But... Um, went back to my normal routine and schedule. And I don't know if it was maybe a year later or it was, it was a while afterwards. She's like, you probably need to get some help with that. You're not doing very well with that, you know? And, uh, but I didn't, um, and I didn't think anything was wrong. I kind of went back to my normal. Um, and then <clears throat> for me, it was when we started working with veterans with post-traumatic stress and doing retreats with them um, and then talking with them. And I, I wound up doing the fitness portion and doing the martial arts with them. And through there, I developed close bonds with some of these guys. And the group that was coming through at the time were mostly from the special operations community, had tried to commit suicide, had a plan to commit suicide, had an attempt. Um, so working with them, started developing some close bonds. They started sharing stories with me. And the more I heard, you know, I started going, oh, shit, that, that's me. That's, that's me. And that, that was really, and that was probably, what, 2014, maybe, 2015? That was the first time I realized that I had some issues, which is now probably, I don't know, what, 27 years into my career? And... uh and, and that's when, you know, I also realized here I am telling these veterans like yoga is good for you and I rest and uh, things that I was doing. But even the accelerated resolution therapy that was offered there, but I had never been through myself. And uh, and that's actually what I went through was for my friend Seth that killed himself. And and that actually kind of put that to bed for me. Um, but then I think that was the kind of the, the band aid that pulled some stuff off for me. 
and then I never had the the depression, you know, and I've got an amazing support with Janelle and we, it just happened that I see it as a gift, right? It, it's happened at a right time. We were at a facility that we were working with that was treating some of the worst, um, which is where I found out. And I was doing yoga at the time. I was doing fitness at the time. Uh, went and got my yoga instructor, had my martial arts as a back, as an outlet, and then going through that. So the timing, I think, was good for me. And now when I look back, I see all the, all the missed signs and, and, uh, we actually took on a, a, uh, a service dog to train for a veteran. Um, it was after our dog had passed. We didn't want to get another dog. And one of the trainers, one of the veterans that went through that we sent to be a master dog trainer, he was given a puppy from, from the place he worked at and, uh, and they gave it to us. So we were going to foster this dog for a veteran. And, uh, the program wound up going away, but then the dog became actually mine and was, yeah, yeah. And, and, and for me, it was the, pretty profound hypervigilance and the dog was I didn't really like it at first because if you have to focus on the dog you can't focus on your hypervigilance which you know is uh, is a kind of a like a little blankie but so the dog kind of broke me I, I wouldn't say totally of my hypervigilance but but even uh, when I found my outlet of martial arts right talk about overdoing it um, so if one's good, right? Seven is better. And I think it was when I went to add the eighth martial art that she's like, eh, maybe seven, seven's enough, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I started, you know, this is before I had, had found out, but you know, I, I just think I found out at a good time because most people, right, they get that injury or they retire and then they're out of that support structure and then their life falls apart and i think a lot of them that at least in my experience people that have reached out to me they don't even know why their life is falling apart they don't know that they have pts you know uh, but they just know that they're not doing well and you're usually masking it with alcohol is a biggie drugs is another one you know and uh yeah it's, it's just a shame and and really we're doing as a community the first responder community we're doing a horrible job at it you know and all this is my my rant is not everywhere but all of the focus is on the guy who's uh spiraled out of control is messing up his job and is suicidal right whereas that's not where the attention needs to be. It needs to be in the academy. It needs to be in the education. It needs to be throughout the career. There has to be the trust because I can tell you, um, at the time when I got my service dog, I had a really good chief and, uh, it was a big step for me to let him know, like this dog is in training. So they had to let me have it there. But, um, the, so I told the chief and assistant chief that, that it was actually mine. But th th those are the only people that I had told that to. And then, you know, now we have an administration that there is no trust between administration and line and it's contentious. So 
you know, even people within our department are struggling, do not feel comfortable coming forward. You know, I have people reach out to me and I'll, I'll send them to places and stuff, but, um, that's a big step, whether the, it's reality or perception that you're going to lose your career. You know, now I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more open about it because I've always been open if somebody asks or somebody's struggling and uh, I share my experiences and, and, and people that have reached out to me. Um, and when I share that I've had some similar experiences, they're always shocked because I think I did a really good job of compartmentalizing and I was always the, no matter what the call was, I was always the calm guy that brought the calm in. Uh, so I think it was a real, um, eye opener for people like, really you? So, and you know, so I think a lot of people don't realize it that they have it and and nor do people around them yeah you know? no and i think that's what needs to be heard and i want to get to janelle in, in a second but um is it's the same to me when there's all the focus on carcinogens and the cancer issue and nothing on the sleep deprivation and the you know the the nutrition and the the fitness and the same with, with right now there's the focus on the virus and not the underlying health conditions that are actually killing 95 percent of these people that are dying so yeah i mean we can't, and in PTSD, you can't think, oh, well, it was that call that caused it. No, you've been a firefighter or a medic or a mortician or whatever it was for 5, 10, 20 years. It, there's that cumulative effect. And if we ignore that, yeah. then... And, s- and sleep is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, sleep is where we process our thoughts. And I spent many years never really sleeping, just a few hours. And I can tell you now... I sleep a lot. <laughs> I mean, we sleep in every day that I'm not working. But when I do a few back-to-back shifts or I have to do a double shift now, going a couple shifts without sleep, I can feel a profound impact, which if you're living that every day, you don't, no, you don't realize it. But sleep is, is like probably the most important thing. And I don't really see how you can ever fix that in the fire yeah. service. Well, I mean, to me, it's staffing. It's as simple as that. The 2472... I think should be a professional standard and the reality is we need to invest in our people. Well, We're I, killing our people. So I we agree, have to understand. But then firemen are just as guilty because give them a 72 hour shift off and they'll go fill it up with their other job. See, and I get that kickback a lot. And my, well, no, it's not kickback, but I'm saying it, you know, for me, it'd be like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. I can squeeze another, you know, so. Yeah. But I think if you, like you said, at the front door, if you educate, truly educate like O2X is, you know, on this yeah. is, this is the effects. I've always said, if you want to hang drywall for nine hours on your days off, yeah, beautiful. We're not exactly known for our pay in right. this profession, but understand that do not choose the helicopter, the night ER shift, because that will be completely detrimental. So it has to be both sides. And I always get, oh, but they do this and they do that. I was like, well, shut the fuck up. Both of you <laughs> need to change the way you do it. We have to create an environment where these men and women can sleep. And that way, when they get back to their next you know, shift, there's some semblance of normal, but yeah, as a responder, you have to, you know, you have to choose wisely. And then the other thing is if you staff your department properly, there's not the overtime people to take. So that this whole, well, they'll just take more overtime. Well, that's because you've not staffed properly. Yeah. And it is, it is a, an education piece because if you don't know it's an issue, like, like you mentioned O2X and the first time that Janelle did an O2X event, I was there with her and I got to, um, I sat down with Adam 
I think you did an mm-hmm. interview with him. Yeah. And he kind of explained what the thing was. And I was like, this is what I've always wanted to have in the fire service. Like, like this is the kind of stuff that can revolutionize the fire service. Like the, f- the fitness, cause uh, you know, we're not really known for fitness a lot, you know, but that, that health component, all of that and the, the resilience piece and, and the really education about PTS. It's not, it's not always that person that's spinning out of control. It's, pretty much everybody that works in this field is going to have PTS mm-hmm. at some point in their life. How can you not? And ha- yeah, how, do, how could you not, you know? But it's not okay, right? It needs to be okay because I, I don't see it as a mental illness. I think it's a disorder so they can have a code so they can bill for it for insurance, right? I, I think it's a it's a... It's a natural process. We're not, as humans, right? We're designed to survive. And I think PTS is a assistive survival mechanism, right? It's, it's, it gets burned into our brains to protect us from the things we see. But, you know, but the outside of that is when we're not always in danger is we see danger everywhere and then it winds up becoming a health issue for us and then eventually winds up, you know, ruining lives. And I, I can't, I couldn't even begin to put a number on the amount of lives I've seen destroyed by, by the stresses of the job. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned as well, the addiction side and, and I want to get to, to Janelle now. Um, you know, we always look at the suicide oh, that's mental health and addiction is separate. No, they're all, they're all mental health. So your journey, I know we spent a long time in the fire service now, but Tell me what you transitioned to post UN and then, and then how you found, you know, where, where your kind of aha moment was mentally and then how you found yoga. Yeah. When I, when I came back from, so now I had spent a total of about five years away. So I spent two years traveling, um, my last years in military with, um, all those little ops that we did. And then I spent two years in Bosnia. And when I came home, when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to use my GI Bill and go back to school, that was the aha moment. When I got back, went to school, was living by myself in an apartment, going to classes with a bunch of 18-year-olds, and um, had absolutely nothing in common with anybody. Nobody. I felt very isolated and very... Uh, oh, I was so angry, you know, like nobody even knew where Bosnia was in my classes. They had no idea. And I'm like, I just spent two years of my life with, you know, all this real stuff going on that I documented. And uh, these people don't even know <laughs> what's going on. What did I, you know, there was no purpose anymore. Um, so I actually um, tried to f- fill my um, that, that hole that was left there, I felt guilty because I've left all these people behind. Um, I am part Croatian. I have to disclose that. So I found my, my family over there, my cousins. And, um, so I decided there's a lot of refugees coming back. And as part of my studies, I was going back to school for photojournalism and cultural anthropology. Uh, so I found fa- a family that was coming from Bosnia to be relocated in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I was going to school. And I followed them. And that was like really, uh, fulfilling, 
um, to see that there can be a whole new life started afterwards. So that really helped m- my transition. That and a whole ton of wine and <laughs> as I went through college. But um, after college, I, I landed a job at uh, the St. Petersburg Times, which was one of the top 10 papers in the nation at the time. And that was in 99. I got here. And, uh, and it was right back to that same feeling of fast paced, um, you know, fires and, you know, crime. And there's all these different beats. And I was photographing all that stuff. And it was people calling you in the middle of the night, run out here and shoot that. So I felt right back in my element. And, uh, that's when I met Ray right after I got here. I was doing a, a shoot on the helicopter and, uh, we got to spend what, seven hours together. To wait for a call, yeah, that never happens actually. And uh, yeah, first the ride along <laughs> moved in two weeks later. Best assignment ever. Um, so the transition when I went back to school was really something that uh, uh, peaked its head out to me. Um, they didn't have a diagnosis of PTS back then. This was before, way before Afghanistan. I was in college in ninety six to ninety eight. Um, so that was that period. There was no wars going on. And I didn't even know that I could go to the VA to get, you know, anything. Uh, like when I got out, I went straight to the UN. And then that all s- ties were kind of cut with the military, the out processing. I, I don't, I guess I never really listened very carefully <laughs> to what my benefits could have been, but I never knew. Um, then we, you know, I settled down, had a family, was working at the newspaper uh, for about 10 years. And that newspapers started to cycle down the drain. You could see the writing on the wall. People, this was in 2008, people were getting by attrition. They just weren't replacing. And, you know, it was getting, it was getting kind of, um, thin. And, uh, all of a sudden out of nowhere, I got a job offer for a contract company for the military as a photo editor for magazines. And, uh, that was an aha moment in a few different ways because I was doing, um, it was basically kind of psyop for other countries with all of our different global combat commands. I was pulling imagery to go with these stories that we were kind of writing for these populations of other military that we work with. And, um, the stuff I was reading, I was like, Oh, I was connecting all the dots. Like I was in these places and okay, that's who I was photographing over there. That's why I was there. And then, um, it was pretty scary. I'm like, God, if I would have known all this stuff and I was over there, I would have never done some of them things. <laughs> craziness. But anyway, I was in that for two years. And then the, as all government contracts are unstable, it got outbid. And all of a sudden, here I am 40 something years old, can't go back to the newspaper because it's circling down the drain. I'm a photojournalist. And uh, that is kind of going out the window too. People aren't really hiring photojournalists anymore. And uh, that contract job is gone. We can't move because he's got a pension, so we're we're stuck here. Whatever is here is what I have to find uh, work for. And all that stuff kind of bubbled back up again, like when I was back in school, like this feeling of, you know, I didn't have a purpose. I've lost my, my um, sense of why am I here? What am I doing with myself? And all that stuff started to come back. And one of my friends, um, uh, she knew I went to the gym to work out all the time. She's like, you should try yoga yoga is more for the neck up. And I was like, oh, all right. So I came to this little studio and I took a hot power class and it was just one of those, you know, wow, where has that been? Where has it been all my life? This has uh, some something to it that makes me feel 
really settled, really grounded. Um, and it's a good workout, really good workout. So I just started doing it like crazy and got, I went back to school for my master's and I got my teacher training certificate at the same time and, uh, ended up buying the place. So, um, once we bought the yoga studio, um, I ran into a green beret one day, came in one of my classes and he had an ab reaction afterwards. It happens in yoga, you know, we have our issues in our tissues and sometimes when you open some stuff up, things come out, right? So we sat and talked after class for a while and uh, he was going through a therapy. He had gone through a few tours in Afghanistan. He was using accelerated resolution therapy to try to help his PTS. And, uh, and he said, I can see how this yoga could really help our veterans too. And I was like, exactly. Um, so that's how we teamed up and we decided to start a nonprofit called Veterans Alternative. And that's how that happened in 2014. We started, um, um, hooking up with like the HUA Foundation, Army Rangers. They were identifying red flag people, sending them to us. We were putting them through a five day, um, of accelerated resolution therapy every day. It's a form of like EMDR, bilateral eye movement. Um, and then we would have yoga, eye rest, integrative restoration. It's a yoga nidra, yogic sleep that Walter Reed studies. Um, it's very, very good for everybody, but it's awesome for people with uh, hypervigilance. And uh, then the Kali training, and we introduced all that. And um, I think that's probably how I help, help process all that stuff. That was the same thing that Ray had kind of noticed when you are working back in that environment where everybody around you is dealing with a similar thing and you're going through those modalities. It makes it normal, right? It's not like you're isolated anymore. It's normal to feel this way. It's your body and your mind's natural reaction to a really unnatural circumstance. And you just got to figure out what works for you to fix it. Yeah, or maybe not fix, um, alleviate, I should say. I don't think you can ever really fix it. Yeah. Well, you said keep the issues in the tissue. So I'd love to expand on that. I know the, the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I actually have it, haven't listened to it yet. I keep getting told to, to put it at the top of my list. Um, but obviously the concept, and I've seen it even as a coach, um, with like strongman stuff, minimal skill, maximal effort. And, you know, there's a sled and they're like, all right, why have you stopped? Come on, keep pushing excuse me and people will push it and then like burst into tears and it's the same kind of thing whatever they're channeling at that moment is 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 released so it kind of what are some of the things that you learned and seen about taking that you know mental trauma and it being exhibited physically well we're we're an organism and uh you hold things your body is impacted by say a trauma you see it you smell it you feel it it's um Besser van der Kolk with the body keeps the score really describes it beautifully. Um, how you're, you're essentially living with a new nervous system when you experience trauma. Um, you have to figure out a way to dissipate that charge that you took on from the trauma. Um, or it's going to manifest in, uh, disease or mental problems or both. Um, there's ways to do that. And that's movement through the body is one of the main ways. He, he's a big proponent of yoga. Um, and uh, what we're doing is trying to 
help regulate the central nervous system. So you know how you have these triggers when something that you smell reminds you of something that bad that happened or you hear something. uh, This is all in your, um, your lizard brain, your amygdala, which they actually found when you experience trauma, um, your amygdala actually grows larger and your prefrontal cortex shrinks. So your fear center is now taking over your thought patterns and your body reactions to things. So you need to figure out how to get that back in balance. Um, yoga works in many ways as far as um, using breath. You, you can access the vagal response in the body to calm it. Um, through our postures, uh, for example, um, I always use this one, uh, opening the front of the body will activate your sympathetic nervous system. And then you can use your breath while you're there holding that posture to calm and access the parasympathetic nervous system. So you're using both at the same time. And it's, it's a, it's in within a safe little compartment that you are in control of. So you know that that is going to pass, whether you're holding it for a couple breaths or the teacher tells you, you know, one more, one more moment until we move to the next. So you know that there is an end and that is rewiring our, our minds to our bodies and and the whole system. So I think I want to say I talked with, about this with Olivia Mead from um, Yoga First Responders. But I know when I do, not so much now, it's funny because I'm, I'm retired, so that's probably why, but when I was on shift, I would hold a pose and I'd have this like, just just burning desire to get the hell out of that pose for no reason, but I think it was again, that probably being forced to be present, being forced to be in that moment, my body almost wanted to reject it. And so it wasn't so much a... Um, you know, a, a mobility issue or a fatigue issue, but it was like an inability to just be quiet. Yes. Being in the moment is, is the, the mindfulness piece is what we really try to drive home with all of the, the practice itself. So we're always taking all that stuff that has happened to us in the past and our mind goes right over that mind, uh, that moment bump that's happening right now and projects way out into the future what's going to happen next so you're always operating in those two spaces so how do we get in to this moment right here right now and that is really the breath is a biggie so just even if it's a a couple seconds that you sit with yourself and just notice your body breathing in and out and we breathe 29,000 times or so a day up here in our upper chest so in yoga we um, encourage that diaphragmatic breath there's so many studies out there about how just being able to regulate your breath can regulate your whole system. Breath is a really good book. Who wrote that one? James Nestor yeah. is a, and, um, another one is, um, the edge. They talk about it with the Winhoff method. There's more and more, uh, this stuff was forgotten and re-upped in all different civilizations throughout time. It falls away and then it comes back. And I think we're on another up step with uh, connecting breath with our whole um, organism on how to keep it healthy and, and viable and bring us into the present moment just by using your breath. Yeah. Now, I've had several guests, Brian McKenzie on, Melissa Vranich, mm. and some other people. Yep. And there's, there's more I want to get on because even on the way to calls, like I used to deliberately, if it was a you know structure fire, if it was a cardiac arrest or something where you knew you had to get in that flow state when you get there and just trying to box breathe on the way to the core mm-hmm. and it works it's incredible yep yeah we're the only beings on the whole planet that can regulate our breath 
that's pretty magic. Yeah. <laughs> now, what about posture? I know there's a pretty direct correlation to, between shitty breathing and, and sitting. Yeah, shitty breathing. Shitty breathing. On <laughs> <Love> his accent. <laughs> so to not shittily breathe. So we uh, we sit tall. So you can see if you look at someone's body language, you can almost tell when they're hurting or if they have something like if you're really rounding forward, trying to protect yourself, right? Trying to kind of cave in. That's the, you know, people who are depressed, all that just, it just comes forward. So what you want to do is counter that just like the posture. So sitting tall and open, um, we have a, a pose in yoga called mountain pose where you just stand tall and most of us standing tall. If you notice you're standing in line at Walmart, all this stuff just rolls forward in the shoulders. So when you notice that, just bring your mind into the present moment. How am I standing? Then see if you can stand any taller, like through the crown of your head as tall as you can. And then let the shoulders just relax because we're all walking around like our shoulders are our earrings, you know? So let that kind of relax back and down and then you'll feel this kind of opening across the collarbones and the pack muscles all of a sudden you just created all that space now you can breathe even just a little deeper from regular breath instead of that whole rounding thing and the more that you can snap and imprint that into your mind um, even if it's just two three times a day um, you'll improve your posture very fast Um, if you just notice that you're rounding pop back in and it's just like working your muscles in the gym just keep doing it I just, see it. just watching you do that, it really kind of resonated me with a lot of young people at the moment with the cell phones and everything. Is there also a reverse thing where if you are in a posture, it's going to give signal to the brain of almost like a depressive state? I think so. Um, I'm sure there's got to be research on that. They have found that natural curvature in the cervical spine is going away because we're taking this 10-pound bowling ball and loading it forward at that angle where we're on our phones and our tablets and, and stuff all the time. Um, so I, I use that a lot in class. Make your make your chin in line with the floor and then see if you can send your the back of your head just a little bit to the back of the room. And it's a really slight little movement, but you can feel it in your neck. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to be sitting or standing. Your neck isn't supposed to be loaded like this. It's terrible. And we all have headaches from all that. And all the, you know, the traps are all tight. All that is linked to these, you know, anatomical incorrectness that we have all day. Yeah, absolutely. Well... You started this organization. Um, I'm always intrigued about this. A lot of people I've had on that have been through trauma, when they've come out the other end, one of the huge healing elements seems to be when you have that purpose again. So did you find a kind of element of healing within yourself when you were able to start helping these vets? Absolutely. I think giving back um, is always, you know, it's not even a monetary thing, which you know, it's always nice to make a little money to help put food on the table, but really it's about giving back and feeling like you're, you're making a difference in this world, right? Um, I really felt disconnected from uh, the camaraderie aspect that we, that we find in the military and the fire service that you just can't find out in the civilian world. And when you're not in that anymore, it's so isolating. And when we're isolated, um, that's when things all just start to fall apart because we don't have that connection, that sense of purpose and meaning and value in our lives. So even if it's just, if you're a retired firefighter or a veteran and you're finding that you're feeling like that, 
get your ass up and find an organization where you can make a difference, even if it's just volunteering, just to, to get plugged back in. Cause there's a lot of people out there that can learn from you, um, and learn from what you went through. All that experiences, um, you can't, you know, you can read books on it, but if you're sitting in front of somebody who's been through it, there's a connection there that makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then, again, speaking of, of tribes, another tribe you're in now is O2X. So how did you find them and, and kind of give the audience an overview of what they do? So Annie Ockerlin is my teacher for Integrative Restoration, IREST, and Warriors at Ease. They're two organizations that um, are kind of an extension onto teacher training to uh, help teach to uh, these populations, veterans, first responders. O2X um, started with a couple Navy SEALs, three Navy SEALs, and um, they work with, they did a big study at Boston Fire Department um, where they ran their their folks through for a year and they found all these great benefits uh, to getting in there at the beginning. Um, oh. oh, sorry. And, and the studies that they did, like the heart attacks, the cancer rates, um, the health effects of the job, you know, they really started noticing in Boston was, was an epidemic. And I think... I don't know how they partnered with O2X, but when they got involved, um, you know, they did a study there. And the studies out there, I'm not sure, I don't want to quote, but a substantial reduction in injuries, sick time usage, healthcare costs, you know, just by having this program. And, and, and they're running people from everybody in the department's gone through, and then all their academy recruits mm. are going through. So, so again, investing in your people. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's it, the crazy exactly. thing. Exactly. And, and they've really, you know, they were they were known for having a lot of cardiac and cancer issues throughout that department, you know, from just the way it's always been. And I think uh, some key people in that organization and hooking up with O2X and, and um, making a decided effort to to change, you know, you know, firemen hate two things, right? The way things are and change, but they've actually completely revamped the, the way they're doing things and their outlook on, you know, they realize like, especially I think one of their commissioners realized they're, they're just needlessly killing, injuring and, and losing guys to health. And, and, you know, it's not even good from a fiscal point. And, you know, and they've proven that with their study that fiscally it makes sense, you know, ethically it makes sense. And, and for the guys, it's, it's made sense. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's an, an area that I've talked about a lot, which is it should just be the ethical. You should, if your people are dying, that should be enough, but it isn't. And it's nauseating, but it's the reality in some of these organizations. And so having, being long-sighted enough to realize if you invest, whether it's health and fitness with O2X, whether it's an additional shift to allow adequate rest and recovery, even if you don't care about human life, that's still going to make you look like a rock star down the road financially. So either way, it's a win-win. You just have to get outside the, I want to get my Christmas bonus and look good this fiscal year because it's that mentality that's killing our people. Yeah. So yeah, they're expanding because it, it's working. They, since we start, I started on three years ago, I think with them. Uh, almost four. Almost four. Annie Ackerlin, my teacher, um, she was doing the eye rest and the yoga for them and they're growing exponentially. So they are starting to stack workshops, um, 
happening at the same time in different cities. So they need more people to come on. So she knew the work we were doing with first responders and that's how I got hooked up with them. Um, so it was, uh, cooking for a while before COVID, there was probably one a month at least that we were going to. Um, and then they were also running simultaneously other ones that, uh, at the same time. So they're all up and down the East coast now from Broward to Boston over to the Midwest and now, and I think they're also out, out West. Yeah. I think they're trying to, trying to get in California. I got Josh coming on the, and it's interesting cause he was a ranger and then after his special operations career went into the fire service we had to wait while he did his probation but he's with Boston yep so that's going to be an interesting conversation to hear the other way you know you 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 got the you know some guys that went to the military after the fire service where he you know was not just in the army he was spec ops and then o2x and then the fire service yeah i I met him on one of my first uh workshops and he had a big old beard you know the operator beard, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then when I went to Boston, I went to Moon Island to do a O2X there, and he was he was there in the uniform. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, he had no beard. Yep. <laughs> I didn't recognize him, so he joined. Yeah, it's awesome. Brilliant. <laughs> All right, so then for people listening, um, where can they find O2X, and then where can they find the studio too? Okay, O2X dot com. Uh, they have a really awesome website, and they just put an app out where you can get. Everything from nutrition to daily workouts um, at all different levels. You can dial in, like, are you a, a Pinto or a Corvette? And <laughs> and they'll have a workout for you in there. Um, they have uh, meditation tools, sleep. Uh, we have an, a couple eye rests on there. Um, so it's a, an awesome app. Uh, as far as uh, the studio goes, it's trinity-yoga.com. We have a whole online uh, segment through Kajabi, our Kajabi website. And um, we have IRS on there that are free for first responders, veterans, anybody. We have here on Thursdays, if anybody's in Florida and you want to come to Trinity at 1230, 130, bring your whoopee and your pillow and we'll get, put you to sleep. <laughs> yeah, veteran and first responder only. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned IRS, so it's something I meant to put in before we do the closing questions. What is IRS? You know, describe that for people listening. Integrative restoration is a form of yoga nidra, which translates as yogic sleep. And it's a ancient guided meditation practice, thousands of years old, came over from India. And in 2006, Walter Reed did a study on uh, our folks coming back from Afghanistan with all kinds of hypervigilant sleep problems, all that. So they heard about the benefits of yoga nidra. But they wanted all the dirty hippie cleanse out of it. It's got a lot of rabbit holes that they can send you down. It uses a lot of guided imagery. So, of course, you can understand why that might be a little detrimental to somebody who's coming back from war. You don't want to take them down uh, some guided imagery path that is going to set them off. So this uh, leading PTSD researcher, Dr. Richard Miller, uh, they contacted him and said, can you make this palatable for the military? And he, so he did. He made his 10-step protocol. It's usually about a... 35 minute practice. You can do shorter or longer. And, um, uh, another, I have to mention Annie has, um, a really good site, tons of IRS available on there on exaltedwarrior.com. And, uh, she does a lot of work here at, um, James Haley with our first or with our, uh, veterans. So those are all really good tools that you can try at home. Um, it, helps reduce hypervigilance, helps increase concentration. Um, 
they've done studies on brainwaves and we go into what's called paradoxal sleep state. So you, you do it kind of like drift when you listen. You'll hear the person guide you through autogenics, like taking you to different areas of your body. And, um, and then breath sensing, body sensing, there's different parts of the protocol. Most people will listen. You'll, you'll hear the voice the whole time. You might be awake. Some people like shift workers, some of our first responders, they're like, <laughs> as soon as they, <laughs> they lay down, they're out, but they needed the rest. But they found through brain studies that you get, um, what you need, whether you're awake or sleep during these, you go into a theta delta brainwave state and the equivalent of a half, uh, 20 minutes is about two hours of, uh, REM sleep. So it's like a big power nap and we do them in the afternoon. Like, especially when your circadian rhythm starts to crash after lunch, pop one in, turn your phone on, do not disturb, duct tape the kids in the closet, just get that <laughs> half hour that you need, do an eye rest and, and, and see how it feels for you in the afternoon. You'll be, like it's like a big power nap you feel really awake and alert afterwards and it really gives you the premise behind it is that we're all born completely whole and perfect with nothing wrong and we go through life um collecting these things that happen to us and as you pile all that on it gets really hard to access or even know that that space is still within you of stillness and peace everybody has it some people just can't access it because of all the stuff that's going on so hopefully um you can just even just tap into that stillness and peace when you go through this really relaxing practice of eye rest. And then you can cultivate it from there. You can start to see, ah, I do have that. And you can start to find it as you use your, your practice of either meditation, um, or whatever, uh, you know, some people's meditation is fly fishing or sitting in a tree stand, or you can, you can find that. Very through. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, the cell phones are a big distraction. I find that's my thing now. Like downtime, I'm reaching for the phone. So I've been getting the habit of plugging it in a different room. And then when you're a, when you're a parent, especially, you know, with the, the horrendous things that happens in school sometimes, it's hard to get away from that because what if, what if, what if, you know, but finding those moments where you can just cut the cord and put it somewhere else. And then, and then if you can't sit still for more than a couple of minutes without needing to check whatever, that's probably another big red flag that you need to be doing some. There some. is a series we just, or a, what was it called? Social, social dilemma. Social dilemma. Oh, watch that. Amazing. Oh my God. I wanted Amazing. to throw my phone off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, so I was talking about the environment and the individual. You have to be, have ownership, but you have to understand someone's the environment is set up for you to fail. So you have to know that. And then ideally push to change that environment where. That's not the case anymore. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the meditation is really helpful. I mean, we as adults have a formed brain where we can make those rational decisions where we know it's not good for us and, you know, you should put it down. You can sometimes. You got these kids that are getting phones at seven, eight years old and they have no detachment mechanism. They can't. It's pretty scary to think about where we're going to be. Uh, in another decade or so. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. One more area I didn't touch on, so I want to make sure we do as well. We totally skipped over the whole mobility element of yoga too. Mm-hmm. So what have you seen with our population, the responders and veterans, especially the older athlete and the importance of, of the mobility side? Yeah. So um, I use, um, there's a one person that was my first yogi that came through the door at uh, the nonprofit. His name is Forrest. And I, I always use him as my example because he's a really good subject. He was a ranger. He went through ranger school twice, second time with two broken ankles. 
uh, cause he washed out and he wasn't going to wash out again. So he pretty much wrecked his, his legs, you know, going through that. And that set him up for, uh, you know, a lifetime of aches and pains and all kinds of bad stuff in his knees and ankles. By the time he got to us, his doctor, um, did a, um, x-ray of his knee and he had absolutely, it was bone on bone. Uh, he had his, one leg was in a cast, the other one was in a brace and he was on a scooter and he came wheeling in and he's like, my doctor told me I should do yoga. <laughs> I was like, okay. So we, um, we do a lot of adaptive yoga with, with that population. So like I, like I was saying before, if you're breathing, if you can breathe, you're, you're doing yoga. So you don't have to do any crazy stuff. You can start right where you are. For forest, we started on the ground, you know, set them on the ground, got them to do some stretching, some breathing. And then a few weeks later, we got them standing, just lifting one foot, trying to get some state, uh, the stabilizing muscles are the important piece, um, in yoga. So firemen, weightlifters, all these folks are always using that single plane movement and you're not, accessing or using those stabilizing muscles. So that's where the injuries start to happen when you're jumping out of a truck with gear on and you're not landing like you would if you're in a gym, you know? So, so we worked with Forrest with his stabilizer muscles and he taught me a lot on how to modify, um, you know, if you can't get on your knees, we were using props like bolsters and blocks, you know, and all of a sudden, uh, Forrest is doing, uh, some pretty crazy postures. He actually went through a Ashtanga teacher training and now he teaches, uh, you know, four years now it's been on his journey. He's lost like 40 pounds. Um, what happens I think with yoga is not just the, the whole thing with, uh, you know, you start to feel a little change in your body, but it, you start to carry things off the mat with you. Like, uh, my thing was I found like in traffic, I used to have to commute, you know, hour and a half a day in this crazy rush hour here. And, uh, I started using that breath work, like some Ujjayi breath with sound, accessing the vagal response, calming yourself. That would just start happening automatically. I wouldn't even think about it. It just start, it kicks in when you know you need it. Um, things like that happen when you start to do yoga. You start to be mindful about, um, do I really have to eat that another piece of cake or, you know, things like that. You just start to, you know, feel like how your body feels when you do things to it. And it doesn't feel good when you do that. So you, you might choose uh, something else. So you become more mindful. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. I think that's it. You know, when you, when you get involved with a sport, that nutrition choice, like, well, I'm going to feel shitty the next morning and I've got Krav Maga or, you know, Wing Chun, whatever it is, you know, it does it. You get that ripple effect. I was talking to a member last night, um, about COVID and he'd been doing these classes, you know, during the, the pandemic. He's like, yeah, I'd lost some of the, the strength. I'm like, yeah, but you were doing it every day. That habit is the big thing. And the more you do it, the more that permeates out into everything else you do. Yep. Exactly. Beautiful. All right. Well, we've been going for almost two hours. So I'm going to transition to some uh, closing questions. Um, the first one I love to ask, we can go, you know, start with Ray this time and then go to you, Janelle. Uh, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed or something completely unrelated? Yeah, actually, you brought it up, and, and that is The Body Keeps the Score. It is really an interesting look at trauma, the way our body responds to trauma, the way our mind responds to trauma. Actually, even his journey as a psychologist um, using talk therapy and realizing that wasn't real like they knew a lot about trauma but 
and he knew what he was doing wasn't really helping anybody. And then through this center that he sent up, they started experimenting with stuff like, like yoga and I rest and started seeing profound differences and stuff like, I think they used EMDR, but accelerated resolution therapy is a, is a development from that is the non-talk therapy. Um, because even after everything I've been through, I'm not the guy that's going to go lay on a leather couch and talk to someone, right? A fireman is not the guy that's going to go talk to a stranger about those kind of things. And that book is a really interesting look at, I think it's probably one of the number one books out there that really describes how trauma affects you, how it affects your body, how it affects your mind and ways. And, and a lot of it, he talks, does talk about a lot of childhood traumas, but to, to your mind, trauma is trauma, right? So it's a, it was one of the more interesting books that I've read. Um, it really gives you, if you're really looking for answers, it does really give you a really good grasp of what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your body, <clears throat> how you can process those things, and uh, it, it, a path to, to being a better life. Beautiful. Yeah, and you mentioned childhood trauma. That's another hugely under undervalued element of what we do is that I know now from 360 plus interviews how many first responders members of military carried the most horrendous childhood trauma into day one of this career so if we don't take that into account we're missing a huge chunk of, of some people's mental health journey all right, so same question to you, Janelle. So the the one that I listened to recently, Touching the Dragon by uh, James Hatch. He's he's also an O2X uh, specialist. He was a Navy SEAL. And uh, it was probably one of um, the best, uh, the best um, insights into what does it really look like for one of these operators um, as they're dipping in and out of that world and then coming out um, after being hurt. And then finding their sense of purpose again. It's full circle, but it is a, I mean, really, I started listening to it on a bike ride and I just found that I had to ride my bike more so I could listen to the rest <laughs> of it. It was so good. <laughs> Beautiful. I've heard of that once. I think I didn't realize he's one of the O2X people too. So I'm going to have to put that. There's so many bloody books at the top of my list. But. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Well, then the same question, is there a movie and or documentary? Uh, one of the ones that, that, um, well, we usually give a list for people that were wanting to work with, especially with veterans. And I think one of the ones that um, that kind of tells a good story is that which I love destroys me. Um, that was a really, really good documentary. And it followed a couple guys coming back and their journeys with injuries and PTS and recovery and, and basically kind of delves into how the mind sees everything as a threat. And it, 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 for someone that has no idea about PTS, uh, and how it affects you and, and what people go through, it was a really, cause it was, it was a documentary following these guys, I think over like a five year period. Oh, really? So it was a really interesting one. And that's one that we recommend a lot because it, it's an eye view. And even for people that, don't think they have it, right? Or, or thinking they're coping well with things. Um, it's just a, once you get a window into something and you get a little idea of what may be going on with yourself, it allows you to actually see that, that, um, 
what's happening. Yeah. And it, it was it was one that really sticks out with me. And uh, I I love Sebastian Younger, uh, the Restrepo and the follow ups um, that he did. What was the second one? Um, Korangal. Was it Korangal? There was, was there was one where they came back home. And they followed them. They went on a hike across country. I cannot think of it. We'll have to look it up. If I've seen that one. I know there was was Strapo. I think Karangal was the second one. But there may be another one that I've missed. Yeah, it's back here when they came home. And uh, they went and found everybody and um, did a a hike across the United States and talked to people in the community. It was really interesting. All right. I'm going to have to look that up because I don't know. And I'm actually just – I reached out to Sebastian over the – the um pandemic he has young kids he's like i can't do anything right now i'm trying to (laughs) deal with this homeschooling but i actually was meant to write to him today so hopefully he's going to come back on so that'd be great i'll uh i'll make sure if i find that first okay next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world um yeah i would say annie ockerlin um she was one of janelle's mentors and she has been working in this population for a long time, uh, doing really good work. It was my first exposure to iRest. And uh, and she works with a lot of adaptive yoga with some really bad injuries. And and she's definitely, I think, someone that could shed a little light on, on some of that subject also. Beautiful. And uh, I would like to put out a shout-out to Allison Voison who lives up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. She was our clinical director at the nonprofit, and her father is a salty um, FDNY. He was also a Vietnam vet. Um, She did uh, pioneered the work with ART, uh, Accelerated Resolution Therapy, with our first responders and veterans. Um, So Yeah, he retired from FDNY and then went and worked for Quincy and then retired from there. Oh, really? After uh, a military career. So, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, seen a lot. Beautiful. Well, thank you for both of those. So the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you guys, um, obviously yoga is one of them. Is there anything else that you do to decompress? Uh, For me, uh, is uh, the fitness, working out. That's always been a constant in my life. There's times I've drifted away from it, and when I've drifted away from it, you know, I've felt the effects, um, and martial arts has has been a huge one for me. And then, of course, yoga. But but martial arts is my, especially the the Filipino martial arts. There's a lot of left right brain stuff going on. It's it's continuously flow based. You talk about the flow state. Uh, that whole art is the flow state and achieving the flow state. And that is for me, even when I'm having a bad day and. Sometimes I don't feel like going in and teaching after a long day. I leave there. I leave there pumped. And and um, it's a tribal art, you know. So even in, in my school and where I've gone within my art um, to other places, uh, the the head of the system fosters that, that tribal component. So there are a lot of close bonds. And I have a lot of veterans that come to my class and some first responders. And, you know, for some of them that have been out for a while, it is a reconnection to the camaraderie. It's it's a new tribe for them, and it's uh, it's been, you know, who think that martial arts is healing, right? But there's there's a lot to it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, like I said, I'm going to work on getting uh, Danny Nosanto on. That's uh, one of my dream guests. Actually, Jeff Amada taught 
the stunt guys that I yeah. work with. So and that's another one I'm going to try and get onto. So Janelle, anyone else? I mean, sorry, anything else? The decompression. Um, decompression wise, I, lo- I just, I love riding my bike, but it's so damn hot down here. I can only do it a couple times a year <laughs> or months a year. Um, my, I love hiking and, uh, our, our dream is to move up to the Tennessee Smoky Mountains so that we can be outside all the time and hike and mountain bike. But that's really my happy place when I'm out in the woods. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. So people listening, if they want to reach out to you, are you anywhere online? We're online. It's uh, uh, trinity-yoga.com. And we have uh, the online component. And we, we're on Facebook, social media. We're on Instagram. So Yeah, we're pretty active on social media. So if you look up, look, look up our names on social media, we usually pop up. We're pretty active. For all the business stuff and the travel stuff, we're on, especially for my martial arts, I'm, I'm on social media a lot. So unfortunately... <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been that's extremely interesting dynamic with both of your stories, you know, and where you obviously came together. We didn't even really talk about the actual relationship, marriage, or anything, but um, yeah, the 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 two different um, roads that came through emerged, and where you are now with O2X and, and the studio, it's 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 been amazing to listen. So thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.